Sunday School lesson uh, by the Monty has back there. It's lesson number 11, The Journey to Zion. Put your hand up and we'll get one to you. Lesson 11, we're looking at the journey to Zion. And if you'll turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 18, We're going to look at a couple of verses there, and then we're going to skip over to 2 Samuel. And we're looking at David. We spent a few weeks looking at David's journey of faith, uh, David being anointed king, being colon, uh, David facing uh, Goliath, the giant Goliath. And uh, we're going to continue. We looked last week at David's great trial and we're going to continue looking, we're going to look today at another aspect of David's uh, faith, or if you will, lack of faith in an area. And we're going to finish up next week with some growth in David's life. But First Samuel chapter 18, I want you to look with me at verses 1 through 9. And David numbered, oh, Second Samuel, help if I got in the right passage here. First Samuel 18 verse 1, and it came to pass when he had made an end of speaking to Saul, that the soul of Jonathan was knit with the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would let him no more home to his father's house. And Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was upon him and gave it to David and his garments, even to his sword and his bow and to his girdle. And David went out, whithersoever Saul sent him, and behaved himself wisely. And Saul set him over the men of war, and he was accepted in the sight of all the people, and also in the sight of Saul's servants. And it came to pass as they came, when David was returned from the slaughter of the Philistines, that the women came out of all cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul, with tabrets, with joy, and with instruments of music. And the women answered one another as they played, and said, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very wroth, and the saying displeased him, and he said, They have ascribed unto David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed but thousands, and what can he have more but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day forward. Now skip over to second. Uh, well, we won't, we won't read that passage. We'll turn look at some passages in a moment, but let's go ahead and pray. Uh, Lord, would you help us today? Lord, as we Seek your will and your purpose in our lives. Lord, I think of David. Lord, I think of uh, the roller coaster ride that was his life. Lord, going from being a shepherd, a young shepherd, Lord, to eventually being the king. And Lord, there were some difficulties along the way. There were some battles. There were some struggles. There were some obedience of faith, and there were some disobedience of faith. And Lord, as we look at his walk of faith, his journey, Lord, I pray you'd help us as we examine his footprints. And Lord, that we gain the wisdom, the teaching that we can. Lord, that we avoid the pitfalls, the dangers, the struggles. Lord, bless us now and help us. In your precious name we pray. Amen. We spoke last week and I told the story of a soldier 
an American soldier who, whose name has become synonymous with that of being a traitor. Uh, his name was Benedict Arnold. He was a man who sought glory for himself. He was a man who sought to be uplifted. And, you know, as we looked for a couple of weeks, we talked about David's journey to Ella, the Valley of Ella. That's where he would face Goliath. And as we did, we looked at his anointing to be king. We looked at his battle uh, with the giant Goliath. Uh, we, we looked at the struggle, and we see the victory. And as we began last week, and as we're going to continue and pick up from that point today, we see some other struggles in David's life. David, yes, faced Goliath. But Goliath was not the only battle, nor was Goliath the biggest battle David would face in his life and service. We see a couple of things. We looked at one last week, and we're going to quickly review it this morning and get on to a very dark, a very dark chapter in David's life, a very dark day and set of days for him. If you have your notes there, we're going to catch you up if you weren't here last week. Number one in our notes, we saw last week David's great trial. David's great trial. David's great trial during this time that we read about here, the time between. Now, remember I mentioned that from the time that the prophet would pour the oil on David and anoint him to be the next king. From that time until the time that David would sit on the throne. There's a great gap of time. And during that time after the battle, after that battle uh, with the Philistines, after the defeat of Goliath, from that point until the day that David would sit on the throne and wear the crown, David had a great trial, and that trial was the fact that the king, the crown king, Saul, the one God had rejected, was seeking to take his life. 1 Samuel 18, verse 10, it says, And it came to pass on the morrow that the evil spirit from God came upon Saul, and he prophesied, in the midst of the house, and David played with his hand as at other times, and there was a javelin in Saul's hand. And Saul cast the javelin, for he said, I will smite David even to the wall with it. And David avoided out of his presence twice, and Saul was afraid of David, because the Lord was with him and was departed from Saul. Now, as we see David's great trial, I want you to notice a couple of things this morning that we touched on last week. Uh, notice in verse 6 through 9 here in our text the reason, the reason for the trial. It tells us there, and as it came to pass when David was returned from the slaughter of the Philistines. We, we see several things here, and we could take some some wonderful truths from this passage. Number one, we could see that obviously King Saul had learned to live for the praise of men. I think when Saul came back home, he was waiting. He was expecting. 
He, he was just waiting to hear them sing his praises as he came home. That was what he was used to. We, we see that failure in King Saul's life. We also see that those that worshipped man, and by the way, it was the worship of man here, not the worship of God. As they uplifted King Saul, they also uplifted David, and they lifted David higher than Saul, ten times higher. Because the women sang, Saul has slain his thousands. Maybe that was a recurring song. Maybe it was a song that the women sang every time King Saul came in uh, to town. Maybe every time he entered, that song was sung. We don't know for sure, but what we do know is at least this time, when one group of singers sang, Saul has slain his thousands, another group answered and said, David is ten thousands. Saul wasn't happy about that. <laughs> Saul realized at that point, they don't love me as much as they love David. They're not worshiping me as much as they're worshiping David. You see, Saul had learned to live and thrive on the praise of men. What was the problem here? What was the reason for the trial? David's popularity. He was lovingly accepted by the people of Israel. Understand, the prophet had already, Samuel had already anointed him to be king one day. God had already received him. God was seeking for him a man after his own heart, but it wasn't just God. Now the nation, the people of Israel had grabbed a hold of David and they, they loved him. They praised him, they worshipped him, and the king, King Saul, wasn't happy about it. Wasn't happy about it at all. The Bible says in verse 16 of our text chapter here, but all Israel and Judah, notice this, loved David because he went in and out and came before them. Can I tell you that David became a great hero in the nation of Israel? Before David would wear the, king, the crown, before he would be called King David, he was loved. He was even worshipped. He was praised. And it was that praise that caused the king to look at David as his enemy, to look at David and realize he felt he needed to remove King David. It was Saul's heart problem. Saul's heart problem. Saul began to feel inadequate. Saul began to feel useless. Saul, the Bible says, feared David. It wasn't that he was afraid to fight David. That wasn't what that fear was all about. It wasn't that Saul trembled at the thought of David, David's power. No, Saul was afraid that he couldn't live up to David. He was afraid he couldn't meet the expectation of the people because they had expected David. He had a fear of failure. He had a fear of inadequacy. 
He had a fear that there was no way he could ever measure up. Can I tell you, sometimes we have that problem. We begin to feel inadequate. We begin to feel as though we don't measure up. Can I tell you, when we begin to measure ourselves among ourselves, we begin to feel inadequate. When we begin to think that our worth to God is based upon what we do or our ability, we begin to feel pretty inadequate. But when we base our worth to God on His grace, it removes that feeling of inadequacy. But Saul here had a feeling of inadequacy. He was fearful of measuring up. He was fearful of David. He was jealous of David. Saul's problem of fear was also evidenced in his dealings with David. Saul saw that God was with David and he behaved himself wisely. The Bible tells us in verse 12 of our text, and Saul was afraid, as I mentioned, of David. Because the Lord was with him and was departed from Saul. In verse 15, it says, Wherefore, when Saul saw that he behaved himself wisely, he was afraid of him. So it's pretty obvious for us to understand the reason. I mean, from the outside looking in, we all understand why King Saul was upset. We understand why he would try. We may not agree with it. It may not have been our response, but we can understand the why. We see not only the why, but also we see letter B in your notes, the response to the trial. Now, if you found out quite openly somebody was going to try to take your life, somebody was going to try to kill you, what would your response be? Now, we're talking about a young man who had just fought the giant of the Philistines in battle. A young man who had fought a lion, who had fought a bear, and who was willing to walk down in that valley of Ella to face the giant. We're not talking about a young boy who trembled at the thought of battle. Now, he knows somebody's coming for him. Can I tell you what I believe the nature of David would have been? The natural man of David? I believe the response would have been the flesh. I'll kill him first. I'll kill him first. If he's coming for me, I'm going to take him out first. That would have been the natural response. I mean, David had the love of the people. David had the love of his son, Jonathan, Saul's son. But that's not what David did. What was David's response? David's response was to flee. Can I tell you his fleeing was not because of fear. It says in 1 Samuel 19 and verse 10, And Saul sought to smite David into the wall with his javelin, but he slipped away out of Saul's presence. And he smote the javelin into the wall, and David fled and escaped that night. Why did David flee? It was not out of fear. It was not because David didn't think he could do battle with King Saul. David fled because he would not touch God's anointed. David fled because he knew it was not his place 
to kill Saul. David fled because he did not want to harm King Saul. He sought, he sought a place to hide in the cave of Bedullam. There were people that came to him. It says in verse 1 and 2 of chapter 22, David therefore departed thence and escaped to the cave of Abdullam. And when his brethren and all his father's house heard it, they went down thither to him. And everyone that was in distress and everyone that was in debt and everyone that was discontented gathered themselves to him. Now think about this. David's down there and it wasn't the, the people that were doing well. It wasn't David, you know, man, we, we, we got things going on in our life. We're excited. We want to come and gather with you. It was all the people that, man, they had problems. I mean, they were in debt. They were discouraged. They were all the problem people. All the people that had all the issues came to David. And it says they, he became a captain over them. And there were with him about 400 men. He became a captain of the broken. He was leading those that were in great problem. Eventually, David became discouraged. It says in 1 Samuel 27 and verse 1, And David said in his heart, I shall not perish one day by the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me than that I should speedily escape into the land of the Philistines. And Saul shall despair of me to seek me any more in the coast of Israel, so shall I escape out of his hand. And David arose, and he passed over with his 600 men that were with him unto Ashish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. We see here his response was to flee. Letter C in your notes, I gave this to you last week. We see his rest, his rest in the trial. While his friend Jonathan and his wife Michael helped to protect him as he fled, David's ultimate hope was not in Jonathan. It was not in his wife. It was in the Lord. Uh, he was hiding from Saul in the wilderness. He, he was discouraged. He was down. But he found rest. He found comfort. He found an anchor. In the Lord his God. David, there it says in 1 Samuel 30, and David was greatly distressed, for the people spake of stoning him, because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man and his sons and his daughters. But David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. God led David, never forsook him, never left him. King Saul wanted to kill him, but David always had the Lord's presence. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13, There is no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man, but God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. We see the testing here. We see the struggle. And by the way, can I tell you that, yes, David stumbled. Yes, he, he got discouraged. But David walked by faith through that valley of the shadow of death, 
through Saul trying to kill him, and David came out on the other side in Zion. But this morning, number two in your notes, we'll take a moment to, to look at this thought. We see David's great temptation. David's great temptation. After King Saul was killed in battle, David, by the way, Israel's hero already, began to reign as king over Israel. David was still a man after God's own heart. David loved the Lord. David had a relationship with his God. He desired more than anything else from what we can tell about him, what God said about David, to serve and to honor his God. His greatest ambition was not to be king. His greatest ambition was not to wear the crown. His greatest ambition was to serve his God. We see that in David's life. 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 3 says, So all the elders of Israel came to the king to Hebron. And King David made a league with them in Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. We see that in 2 Kings chapter 5, or 2 Samuel chapter 5. The next verse it says, And David was 30 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 40 years. David was a shepherd boy when Samuel anointed him. But now a 30-year-old man. A 30-year-old man who would bow his knee. Who would receive the crown. David now the king of Israel. David now wearing the crown. The children of Israel had many enemies to defeat. You understand their king had died in battle. They, they were not at peace. They did not have an easy time. Rather, it was a time of battle, a time of friction. David became the king. David became the king that led them into battle. And God gave them victory after victory after victory after victory. David would lead the people and God would give victory, battle after battle after battle. David, the great warrior king of Israel. And they loved him and they, they reverenced him and they, they trusted him. David, a man after God's own heart. In 2 Samuel 11, it says, And it came to pass after the year was expired, at the time when kings go forth to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David tarried still at Jerusalem. It says in verse 2 of that passage, And it came to pass in an eventide that David arose from off his bed and walked up on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman washing herself. And the woman was very beautiful to look upon. And David sent and inquired after the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And David sent messengers and took her. And she came in unto him. And he lay with her. 
for she was purified from her uncleanness, and she returned unto her house. And the woman conceived and sent and told David and said, I am a child. As we focus on David's temptation this morning, I want us to notice some things here. David, a man after God's own heart. David, a man who had been learning to walk by faith. David, a man who had responded so well in all the trouble that had come. But we find him here at this great temptation. We see letter A, letter A in your notes this morning, we see David's lapse. David's lapse. It was a time that every year kings went forth to battle. The Bible makes that very clear in 2 Samuel chapter 11. And yet at the end of verse 1 of 2 Samuel 11, it says, But David tarried still at Jerusalem. Let me make a statement, and I, you might want to write this down. I, I think this will help you. When we are out of the way of our duty, when we get out of the way of our duty, we are in the way of temptation. When we get out of the way of duty and God's purpose and God's will, we end up in a place in the way of temptation. I grew up on a two-lane highway in West Virginia. That little two-lane highway was U.S. Route 35. And drove through the farmland. One side of the Route 35 is the River Valley. You can see the Canal River and all the farmland down along the river. And then the right-hand side of U.S. Route 35 was the hills. And depending on which way you went. That little two-lane highway, now there's a four-lane highway up on the hill above it, but that little two-lane highway when I was growing up was one of the heaviest semi-truck-traveled highways in North America. Now, our home was up on the hill. To turn into our house, you had to turn uphill, and we were up the hill a ways from the road, but it was close to the highway. And people that would come to stay at our house uh, would mention if they spent the night at our house how they had a hard time sleeping because of all the traffic. I grew up used to that traffic. Now it's quiet there because the traffic's up the hill, on top of the hill, way up there, four-lane highway, the two-lane highway, almost nobody drives on anymore down there. But on that little two-lane highway that I grew up on, as you drove, not a wide, not a big highway, just a little two-lane highway, windy little highway through the country. If you got out of your lane, very quickly you would be dead. If you veered to the left of center, it wasn't going to be very long before there was going to be a semi coming and that semi would meet you and it would not end well be very dangerous. Christian, when we get out of the way of our duty, 
we end up in a dangerous lane, the lane of temptation. Now, I want us to see some things about David's lapse, or as we, his temptation, we see that he, he should have been in battle, but he wasn't. Christian, what is it in your life that you have left? What is it that God has for you that you have abandoned? Is it ministry? Is it service? Is it obedience? Because wherever you have left, whatever you have left undone, it places you in a dangerous place, a place like drifting left of center on that two-lane highway I grew up in, and the semi-truck of temptation is coming. We see David's lapse, letter B, in our notes, we see David's lust. I want to read a quote to you from Matthew Henry. Matthew Henry said, Idleness gives great advantage to the tempter. Standing waters gather filth. The bed of sloth often proves the bed of lust. We see some stages in this horrible event. By the way, it was not just a, a quick fall. I, I fell down these back stairs Wednesday morning. Not outside, but inside. And when I fell, it was one step. I, I thought I was at the bottom. I wasn't at the bottom. I missed the bottom step. And very quickly, uh, I rolled my ankle and I fell. Very quickly. I hit the bottom. It wasn't two, three, four, five steps and down. It was one step. Just one step. Now, as we think of David's... David's lust here, it was not something that was just one step. It happened a little bit at a time. It happened in phases, if you will. Number one, as you look there, we see his look. We see this in 2 Samuel 11, verses 2 through 5. David saw a woman washing herself. The sin came into David's life through the eye gate. He was tempted just as Eve was tempted in Genesis by what he saw. He was tempted. We see that. We see that he saw what he should not have seen. Number two, we see his lust. It says in verse 3, And David sent and inquired after the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And David sent messengers and took her, and she came in unto him. And he lay with her, for she was purified from uncleanness, and she returned unto her house. He looked at what he should not have seen, and can I tell you that look did not stay where it was. That look... That look morphed into lust. How many of you noticed that we have billboards across our city? We have lots of them. Billboards on the highway, billboards here and there on the side of buildings. Those billboards are there for advertising. Here's what they want. They want Brother Gerald to look at that billboard of the cheeseburger. 
and they want him to want a cheeseburger. And he's not much of a cheeseburger. You're not much of a cheeseburger eater, are you? I don't know. He's looking like he might want one now. Uh, he is now. He thinks about it. Uh, what's that? A snowburger. Uh, quit swearing in here. And he, he sees that cheeseburger. They want Gerald to look at that. That billboard, by the way, this burger that doesn't exist in real life because you go to buy one and they're this big rather than this big. And they want him to go, oh, I got to have one of those. I really, really, really want one of those. They, wanna, they want that picture, that billboard to elicit a response. By the way, that's what your vision, that's what the eye gate does. It elicits response. And we see here that David's response to what he saw was lust. Read a quote to you. Christians often want to retreat from the spiritual battle and from the war that rages, forgetting they will always find us. Better to be weary in the battle than to become apathetic, lazy, and cut off guard. You can't escape the battle. You can't get away from the spiritual battle. We see that here. 1 Peter 5, verse 8, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, is a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. Now understand, this is not some carnal man we're speaking about here. This is not Esau. Esau, who sold his birthright for a bowl of pottage. No, we're not talking about a man like Esau. We're talking about David, a man after God's own heart, a man who, who faced Goliath, a man who who honored the Lord, a man who loved the Lord, a man who would not touch the king, would not harm him. A godly man who saw what he should not have seen and who began to lust. But it didn't end there. It didn't end there. We see his pride, number three. Through pride and deceit, David attempted to hide his sin. Now think about this. David saw her he said, hey, Hey, who's that over there? Well, that's Bathsheba. That's Uriah's wife. Now think about this. This is King David, a man after God's own heart. He's up on his roof. He says, hey, who is that? And then he said, bring her to me. Can I tell you, we see David's pride. Kind of reminds me of King Saul a little bit. After David brought her to him, you understand, David didn't go and get her. The king didn't go. The king said, hey, hey, you, hey, you servant, hey, you go get her. You bring her to me. There were, there were people that knew about this situation. This was not David sneaking off and whispering over the fence, hey, Bathsheba, come over here. No, this was the king who commanded people to make this happen. I mean, she, they knew that she was, uh, I won't go into all that, but she, they kept her for a while to make sure that things were all good. Uh, we'll leave it at that and until finally David could have his way with her. We're talking people knew what happened here. And then she says to David, David, she sends word, I'm pregnant. David didn't go to Uriah and say, Uriah, this is what happened. He didn't go to the nation of Israel and confess his sin. He didn't go to his God and confess to sin. What did he do? He tried to hide it. He brought Uriah home. He said, hey, hey, buddy, why don't you come home? Why don't you take a break? You get a vacation from the battle. Why don't you go and spend some time with your wife? He was trying to cover up the fact of what he had done. 
But Uriah said, how can I do that when my men are laying in foxholes tonight? How, how, how can I be comforted with my wife while my men are in danger? And so what did David do? The Bible tells us in 2 Samuel 11 and verse 15, and he wrote in the letter saying, Set ye Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle. And retire ye from him that he may be smitten and die. And it came to pass when Joab observed the city that he assigned Uriah into a place where he knew that valiant men were. And the men of that city went out and fought with Joab, and there fell some of the people of the servants of David. And Uriah the Hittite died also. Well, that's some pride right there. This is the man after God's own heart. I said, I'll just kill him. By the way, he didn't just kill Uriah. He didn't just kill him and say, okay, now when his wife gives birth, everyone say, oh, Uriah's heir is risen up, and it's a shame Uriah died, but at least he has a son. No, David did more than that. When Uriah's body was cold, he said, okay, you're my wife now. We see David's pride. David's pride in this great temptation. David received the message Uriah was indeed dead. He married Bathsheba. The, one, the man who at once was known as a man after God's own heart now had grieved the heart of God. Now had grieved the heart of God. 1 Samuel chapter 11, verse 26 says, And when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when the morning was past, David sent and fetched her to his house, and she became his wife and bare him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Christian, we try to compartmentalize life. And we try to say, here's what, here's what our flesh does. We try to say, you know what? I've been a good Christian. I've gone to church. I've served in some capacity in the church. I've done all these good things. So since I've done all of this, it's okay if I step outside the bounds. It's okay if I do that which God says not to do because I did all this good stuff. That's what David did. And by the way, that's what Christians still do today. We, we, try, to we try to convince ourselves, it's okay if I do this because I did that. I want to read an illustration to you this morning. Gary Richmond was a former zookeeper. How many of you wanted to be a zookeeper when you were growing up? I didn't want to be a zookeeper. I just wanted to eat all the animals in the zoo when I was growing up. Remember the first time I went to a zoo as a kid, I'm walking around like, man, I'd, I'd take that shot right there and I'd shoot right. I, but I, this guy was a zookeeper. I thought, man, I wonder what zebra tastes like. Anyway, striped meat, maybe, I don't know. But Gary Richmond, a former zookeeper, had this to say. Raccoons go through a glandular change at about 24 months. How many have ever seen a raccoon? By the way, you may see them at Edmonton. Just be, be fair warned. Uh, they have been for now for about four or five years. They've been being seen in Edmonton, and they are garbage bandits. 
they are highly intelligent. They have almost opposable thumbs. I mean, they, I've, watched a, I've watched a raccoon on top of a trash can that somebody had put uh, elastic bands on, bungee cords to keep the lead on. I've watched a raccoon on top of a trash can pulling those bands, trying to get it off like it was playing, playing a banjo. Uh, they're, they're intelligent creatures. But the zookeeper said about raccoons that when they get about 24 months old, there is a chemical reaction that's something that happens in them. They go through a glandular change. And those that are in captivity, those raccoons that are in captivity, those that are maybe kept as pets in some places of the world, often at 24 months old, they attack their owners. They go from being very loving and affectionate, and something happens, and they attack a 30-pound raccoon, by the way, that's a pretty good-sized raccoon, uh, he said, uh, can be equal, uh, as far as fighting ability and the damage it can do, equal to about a 100-pound dog. I remember one time I was walking, my dad and I, and this was not horribly too many years ago, maybe 14 years ago, so I was old enough to know better. My dad and I were walking, we were there visiting, and I was walking on the hill, now where that four-lane highway is. And my dad and I were up there. He had a tree stand there, and I was helping him with a couple things. And I saw this little raccoon, and I said to my dad, I'm going to catch that raccoon. And my dad said, that's a stupid idea. <laughs> I didn't listen to my dad. I'm a grown man. I was probably 30, 35 years old. I know better than my dad. I chased that little raccoon. I grabbed it by its tail. I felt pretty proud of myself. I caught a raccoon. I picked it up in the air. And then I realized that there was a flaw in my plan because that little raccoon tried to kill me. And my dad's laughing in a distance saying, I told you so. As I'm trying to keep this thing, and I can't just let go of it because it's going to climb up me and rip me apart. So I've got to try to get it away, hold it away from me. And anyway, it was not one of my wiser moments in life. I finally got away from it, and it didn't kill me. I lived through it, and it was not harmed either. I didn't hurt it. Uh, but to say the least, had that little raccoon got a hold of me, it would have been bad. But he said that about a 30-pound raccoon is equal in damage to what a 100-pound dog would do. And he said he felt compelled to mention uh, that change coming to a pet raccoon owned by a young friend of his. The zookeeper who knew one, a person who had a pet raccoon, her name was Julie. And this zookeeper told her, hey, just to let you know, when raccoons... <laughs> reach 24 months old, they go through a, a change, a glandular change. Sometimes they hurt their owners. And he said he explained the best he could this coming danger to his friend. And he said, I'll never forget her answer. And Julie said to him, it will be different for me. It'll be different for me. As she smiled and added these words, Bandit would never hurt me. He would just never hurt me. Three months later, Julie underwent extensive plastic surgery. 
for facial, facial laceration sustained when her adult raccoon attacked her for no apparent reason. Bandit, her raccoon, got released into the wild. Can I tell you, sin too often comes dressed in an adorable guise. So often we say, oh no, it's okay. So often we say, oh, I know, I know what David did, I, but it'll be different for me. I can handle it. I wish I had David here today to tell you that it won't be different. By the way, there are many here in this room who could stand up and testify and say, Pastor, I can testify. I thought it was going to be different, but it wasn't. Many of us could say, Pastor, there were, there were things that I thought that I could handle and I learned I could not. We've been there and failed. David probably thought it would be different for him. And lastly, and we'll close with this this morning quickly, letter C in your notes, David's losses. By the way, sin always brings loss. Sin always brings loss. For a Christian, sin cannot bring loss of eternal life, but it still brings loss. David suffered great, per, great and personal loss because of his sin. The greatest loss was this, fellowship with his God. Fellowship with his God. David also suffered some severe consequences in his family life. No, I want to read just a list of a few results here. I'm not going to ask you to turn here, but I'll give you some references and just tell you what happened. We have the death of the infant, the child conceived by David and Sheba. We see that in 2 Samuel 12, 15 through 18. We see Amnon, that's David's son, raping Tamar, 2 Samuel 13, verses 1 through 12. We see Amnon killed by Absalom. 2 Samuel 13, verse 29. When we see Absalom killed by Joab, 2 Samuel 18, verses 10 through 12. Then we see Amasa, David's nephew, killed by Joab, 2 Samuel 20, verse 9 through 10. We see all the dominoes that begin to fall as a result of sin as a result of a decision made by David. Original, the original decision, I'm not going to go do what I'm supposed to do. It put him in the way of temptation. He looked. He lusted. We see his pride and we see he lost. 1 Samuel 20, 1 Samuel, I'm sorry, 2 Samuel 12, verse 14. Howbeit, because by this deed thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. The child also that is born to thee shall surely die. And we'll close with this thought this morning. Galatians 6, verse 7. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. Along our journey of faith... Christian, along your journey of faith, along my journey of faith, we have trials and we have temptations. Both are inevitable. They're, they're all going to come. They're inevitable. 
We need to continue advancing by our faith. David, David made a wrong choice. Tragic choice. We see some great things, horrible things that happened. Christian, just so you know, we all are going to face similar situations to David. David wasn't perfect. David sinned. By the way, you're not perfect and neither am I. But as we understand our walk of faith, we need to cautiously and carefully navigate by faith. The Bible says there's no trial that I will ever face that God cannot enable me, strengthen me to go through it. By fleeing temptation, by trusting God. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for this warning from David's life. God, help us not to try to compartmentalize our life. Help us not to convince ourselves that sin, a little sin, is okay. Help us not to believe the lie of the devil that it will be different for us. Help us not to toy with sin. Lord, I pray you'd help us to be faithful. Lord, it may be this morning that we have let some things go in our spiritual walk. Maybe in our service, we're AWOL like David was from battle. And Lord, we've placed ourselves in a dangerous position in the line of temptation. Lord, I pray we'd get busy. Help us to get in our place. Help us to be faithful. Help us to trust you. Help us to flee temptation. God, would you enable us, empower us, help us to be yielded to you. Lord, bless us in our service to come. Lord, may you be glorified this morning. Bless those traveling yet to be here. In your precious name we pray. Amen.